welcome. Good morning. We're very pleased today to have VP government class from Frankton High School. Um, could teacher Kevin Klein stand? Thank you for bringing your students to watch this hearing today. And thank you students for coming and your interest. All right, today we're gonna to hear oral argument in the case of Nathaniel Bennett, uh, Bennett versus the state of Indiana. It's a criminal transfer case. Transfer has been granted. The appellant Nathaniel Bennett's counsel will argue first. The counsel table representing Mr. Bennett, we have Valerie Boots and Deb Markison. Welcome. Representing the state of Indiana at counsel table, we have Carolyn Templeton and Ellen Mylander. Welcome as well. Are the parties ready to proceed? All right. May it please the court, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. A trial court's decision to revoke community corrections is reviewed on appeal under an abuse of discretion standard. But the trial court must have made a factual determination that the, a condition was violated before reaching that discretionary decision about the result. Here, the court revoked Nathaniel Bennett's community corrections without finding the state proved its alleged violation by a preponderance of the evidence. In fact, the court's statements reflect it found the state did not prove its allegation. The evidence was insufficient. The trial court what made a question there, and, and for our, our audience, the, 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 there is a, a sort of a rogue, perhaps you claim not rogue, but a statement made by the trial court judge, which is inconsistent with what the trial court judge ultimately found. Is that a fair? I would characterize it rather as the trial court making a, a statement that it did not find one of the elements necessary for proof of the violation. Uh, but yet found the violation. Found a violation or ruled that he was in violation, yes. Without the statement from the trial court judge, then you would concede it's clear that the trial judge could have heard all the evidence and said, I find that you have violated the terms and conditions of the community supervision, corrections, probation, I'm sending you to jail. Had the trial court not made a statement that she did not find it to be uh, patently offensive, we would be before this court on a different claim, which was just strictly whether the evidence was proved by a preponderance, uh, because we don't believe under any analysis the uh, photos were obscene or were patently offensive. So that would be slightly different. Here, we've asked this court to rule under the, the sort of analysis of Cribs versus State, which this court has never taken up before, that when a trial court judge makes a statement that's directly in conflict with what it needs to have found, it can't be ignored. It, we have to assume that the trial court meant what it said. So your, your position here is, is similar to an argument, or is it exactly the same, if, if I am a trial judge and it's a bench trial in a criminal case, the burden of proof is, is, is heavier than here. But, mm -hmm. but let's assume in my hypothetical, there are four elements that the state must prove. And I say, I find that this has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. I find element two, I find element four, I don't find element three proven by a reasonable doubt guilty. Precisely the same situation. 
Yes. Different burden of proof, different circumstances, yes. probation, revocation, but, yes. but that's essentially, if that happens, your position is it, it, it just can't stand. That's right. That's right, Your Honor. You know, on a, on a, a bigger picture on that, explain, give me all your reasons why you think cribs should be extended to the probation violations and being mindful of the fact that a large number of the people in the local jails and the DOC are there on probation violations um, right now. So give me all the policy reasons why you think cribs should be extended and applied with regard to each element being um, I think required. cribs should be applied to essentially any kind of case where the trial court judge makes a statement that reveals something contrary to what its ultimate finding is. It, it's, in cribs it was, uh, as the court I'm sure is aware, the court indicating that it used the wrong um, mens rea, assessed the, the, the facts under the wrong standard of the mens rea necessary. Um, but we also have a Court of Appeals decision in Collier where uh, the Court of Appeals decided that because a judge said on the record, I believe you've made your Batson uh, showing, but we're going to go ahead and go to trial regardless. When the court says something that is contrary to what the law is or what needs to happen, it can't be ignored under whatever scenario, whether it's probation violation or, or conviction or rulings like in Collier, interlocutory type rulings at a trial. So but let's just say it's, let's say it's not as clear as what you're saying and that it is somewhat ambiguous. Um, walk through the analysis the Court of Appeals used with regard to finding that that element was met. Uh, I believe the court just, to be honest, Your Honor, I can't recall that the, how the court walked through the analysis in Cribs except to say that... I'm talking uh, about this case. Oh, in this case, I'm sorry. The Court of Appeals in this case um, used language uh, like that the trial court ultimately affirmed or ultimately reaffirmed its original finding from the hearing, from the actual contested hearing. Um, but the Court of Appeals was uh, ignoring, essentially, the fact that the court stated on the record she did not find the photos to be patently offensive. So the Court of Appeals just simply said, because she came up with this at, after the hearing, and then she basically found again, okay, I find you in violation at the end of the sentencing, again at the sentencing hearing, that that was sufficient, regardless of what she said in the middle. Um, that, that can't that can't be the case because that the, the public will lose uh, respect for and and confidence in the the judiciary following the law when the court on the record makes a statement that shows it's not following the law. The Court of Appeals also um, attempted to distinguish the facts from Cribs because it it said that this did not involve a mens rea element of the offense, which Cribs was in no way limited in, nor should it be, to that sort of thing, to an element of the offense. So the, fa the fact that the trial court made this factual finding that Bennett had not violated the condition when it found the photos in question did not meet the statutory definition of obscenity or obscene matter. Um, the standard for review here is, is a little bit, uh, it doesn't fit neatly because Generally speaking, the standard of review for sufficiency of the evidence in this context would be whether there was substantial evidence of probative value to support the revocation. But when the trial court itself stated it didn't find the facts necessary 
because the, um, the determination of whether something is obscene is for the trier of fact, we can't, we can't uh, use the same sort of analysis for sufficiency as we normally would. Even, however, if this court should choose not to consider the trial court's statements, but instead to do its own de novo review, it's our position that um, the revocation must be reversed nonetheless because the matter in question simply was not obscene because it wasn't patently offensive. Are you concerned at all about the fact and the nature of, of the restriction on a, on a general level? And the, the, this material and the alleged violation is governed by particular statutory language, but when you look at the condition as a whole, it's more of a general restriction on material of a sexual nature. Uh, there, there's restrictions on entering certain types of businesses, and um, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little troubled by, by that. Um, I, I think that the, the statutory language, frankly, is beneficial to your client, but when I look at the prohibitions on conduct that are stated in that condition generally, I have a difficult time finding this case to be on all fours with, with Cribs. Can, can you help me with that? I hope so. Um, the condition that Bennett was alleged to have violated was that you shall not possess obscene matter as defined by 3549.21. That's the exact condition that was alleged to have been violated. The court could have prohibited him as a condition of probation from having sexually explicit materials or even potentially from engaging in sexual conduct or uh, having someone, uh, an intimate partner in the home with him, depending on the reasons for the, the probation conditions. It didn't do that. Specifically, the condition was that he not possess obscene matter under that statute. So we can only look then to the wording of the statute itself, and we have no argument with the fact that the first and third prongs of the statute were met. It's the second prong that the matter or performance depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual conduct. And under no circumstances, whether we defer to who should be the trier of fact, in other words, a, a jury or the trial court, determination here that it wasn't patently offensive, or whether this court does its own review, these photos simply are not patently offensive. This is uh, private, intimate, sexual conduct between two partners in the privacy of their well, own I home. I thought you weren't making an obscenity argument here. You were making a, an argument that what the trial court ordered was inconsistent with what the trial court had found. The trial court found him in violation for having obscene allegedly for having obscene material. But, but the, the trial court also found that the, the, that section two of the statute had not been had the, not been met. Did I misspeak? Yes. I, that is what the trial court found, that it was not met, that section, the second part was not met. I was addressing, if this court is doing its own de novo review, how it would evaluate this evidence and be unable to find it patently offensive. What should we make of the fact that the trial court's finding in your client's favor on, at the sentencing hearing seems to be premised on a misunderstanding of what the law is. There, there's nothing in the law, the, the law of obscenity, that says consenting adults cannot 
engage in obscene matter or that the, the, the photographs of that activity cannot be obscene as a matter of law. So what, what should we make of the, what, what seems to be the legal error underlying the court's finding there? You mean the finding that the trial court made in my client's favor being that it was not patently offensive? She says, quote, I don't find that paragraph two is necessarily met because apparently it was between consenting people. Yes. And what and I'm, saying, I'm saying if we find that that legal premise of her conclusion is wrong, that it doesn't require consenting people, even consenting people can engage in, Absolutely. Uh, can, can have, uh, Absolutely. can be obscene. Consensual well, conduct is, is not a determining factor here. The court's mention of consent be, because it was between consenting adults is simply part of her evaluation of whether this is patently offensive. She was the trier of fact. She was applying, in effect, the community standards that we we defer to a trial court well, of course, or a jury. Of course, 19 pages earlier in the same transcript on page 76, she says, I'm convinced by a preponderance of the evidence the defendant was possessing the phone and he knew what was on it. And having made that finding, I believe the state met their burden and would find the defendant in violation. And if that is all we had in the record, we would probably suggest that this case does fall within the, the purview of the Miller versus State decision, such that the court's uh, statements reveal it may not have applied the correct standard. But when we, we come back, when we come back at sentencing and the court makes a statement showing that she in fact did do the analysis under the statute of each of the three prongs and found that the second prong was not met, we cannot ignore her statements because she has made a factual finding, and that is what we leave to a trial court. And, and if we agree with you on that, what's the remedy? What's the recourse? Re uh, the revocation needs to be reversed. Now, uh, we received notice recently from the state that your client has been released from the Department of Correction. Um, the state did not urge that that meant that the case was moot. What's your position on the mootness of the underlying questions here? The case is not moot. Because My client why? Is, is still on probation for three years, and there is effective relief available to him, namely vacating this revocation, because this is on his record. A revocation of, of uh, probation goes on a record. It shows up in a pre-sentence investigation report. It can be used under our sentencing statute as criteria for enhancing a sentence violation of probation. So this is very, very much still uh, relevant and uh, necessary that the, the violation revocation be reversed. There are no other questions. I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Ms. Boots. We'll see you, we'll hear from you again at rebuttal. Ms. Templeton. May it please the court. A trial court is not making a factual finding in its statement at sanction or sentencing hearing, and to retroactively find that such a statement is a fact finding um, is unfair to the trial court because it is engaging in a fundamentally different endeavor at a sanction or sentencing hearing than it is at the conclusion of an evidentiary hearing or when it is otherwise finding facts. What should we make of the trial court's, these are my words, not yours, slip of the tongue when she made the finding of the statement that she did on page 95 of the transcript. That is in a direct response to Bennett's argue, earlier argument that he should be granted some measure of leniency because this was between him and his girlfriend, it was between consenting adults. 
Uh, I think the trial court there is weighing these factors and determining what the appropriate sanction is. It had before it not only the uh, balance of his community correction sentence it could have revoked, but a probation violation was also filed um, on this same issue. So it, it could have, if it found the sanction, if it found the violation warranted it, also revoked his three years or part of his three years that were, are to be served on probation. Here's my concern that that slip of the tongue is more a suggestion that perhaps the trial court expected to hold or wanted to hold the defendant to a certain level of behavior and that's not exactly what happened here and i'm concerned that your suggestion that um, that's okay to say such things as you have to prove three things or two things uh, and i find that you haven't proven the second element or the third element. Nonetheless, I find that you're guilty in my earlier hypothetical, or here you violated probation. Um, what's the limit to that? Can I, can I sit there as a trial judge and say, well, probation, prosecutor, you haven't met any of your burden of proof by preponderance of the evidence. Um, but you know, defendant, uh, you're, you're trying to scam the system, and, and I've given you enough opportunities, and quite frankly, I think sooner or later you're going to do something wrong. I mean, where, where is that line drawn? And why, why shouldn't we encourage our trial court judges to, to say what they mean and mean what they say? I think that would be a different situation if, it, if the trial court more explicitly said, I don't find all of these elements met. I don't think that the trial court statement here is an indication it didn't find this matter patently offensive. I think it's findings at the conclusion of, of evidence that it, it found Bennett in violation. I think it, it reiterated that finding at the beginning of sentencing hearing, this sanction hearing. Bennett recognized that he had been found in violation before the trial court said this. It, it would be a different situation in the hypothetical you proposed. What did, what did the trial court find Bennett in violation of then? What's the state's position? What was he in violation of? He was in, he was in violation of the community corrections term that, required, that prohibited him from possessing obscene matter. Counsel, uh, do you agree with Ms. Boots that the community corrections contract did not prohibit uh, Mr. Bennett from engaging in this sexual activity with his girlfriend? He was permitted to engage in the activity, yes. It, it, it strikes me anyway as a little odd that if the underlying activity is permitted, is not prohibited by the contract, that a picture simply reflecting that activity somehow violates the contract. Am I, am I missing something? Or what's, what's wrong with that, uh, that, that assessment? Nothing, nothing is wrong with that assessment. I would point out that Bennett has not challenged the application of this pro, uh, provision I, I to know, him. But that's, that's, that's my question, not, not, not hers. Fair enough. But. Uh, I, I think that there, there, are, there might be some reason um, to treat in, in the treatment of a sex offender or, or in his underlying uh, conviction why the state would have an interest in prohibiting him from viewing pornography or viewing sexually explicit material like but, but this. But acknowledge that he can engage in that activity, but he can't take a picture of the activity? That, that's just something like an oddball result. It, it does seem odd, and I would agree with that. I, I think part of that that tension is because the, 
I believe that the U.S. Supreme Court has specifically said uh, the state cannot prohibit somebody from engaging in lawful sexual activity um, under, under the Fourth Amendment, well, but, 14th but, but, Amendment. But people waive their constitutional rights all the time. Presumably he could have contracted to such a restriction, right? Yes, yes. And, and presumably the state would be arguing that would be enforceable. If he contracted and agreed to it, potentially. I'm not, I'm not sure of that answer, to be honest, Your Honor. I, I think um, the, the tension might be a little bit resolved if, if you consider the rest of what he's prohibited from doing here he's the, in this provision. Uh, the rest of the term clearly prohibits him from engaging in otherwise legal expressions of, of sexual behavior. Um, you know, he's prohibited from entering businesses that are, that are related to, to sex. Well, he didn't do that, though. No, he didn't, but I think that informs the kind of behavior that is targeted by the provision, the first sentence of the provision, which he Well, it gets back to my concern that, that how much leeway should a trial court judge have? Well, this is close enough. And the, and, the, and the comment that the trial judge made about, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't sure what I was doing was wrong. I mean, that's, that's, that's where I'm struggling with this. Sure, it, there is there's evidence that the community corrections officers had a conversation with Mr. Bennett when he began community corrections, that they went over this contract with him. And if he had any questions or concerns about what activity, what he was not permitted to do, uh, that would have been the time for him to clarify those questions so that he wouldn't be later found in violation. So he should have asked, can I have sexual relationship with my girlfriend, yes or no? And if, if the answer is yes, and, and she takes a picture and I possess it, or I take a picture and I possess it, is that a violation? That, 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 that's something he should have done. Yes, yes. What are the policy? Krebs has a lot of appeal with regard to making sure that findings are, are, are correct, that if you're gonna revoke somebody's probation and you could go to DOC for five, 15, 20, 30 years, that you, the elements need to be met. What is the state's position with um, applying, what are the downsides or the positives on applying Krebs to probation violations? I understand that the standard shift for preponderance versus reasonable. Uh, this goes back to my earlier point um, that the, tr the, the trial courts are acting in substantially and fundamentally different manners at, a, at an evidentiary hearing and at a sanction hearing. Um, I, Cribs and, and this case both deal with statements that the trial court was making at a sanctioning hearing and weighing what the appropriate sentence is or would be for this offender. I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at what is big picture. I'm looking at big picture because how we rule in this case applies not just to this circumstance right. bigger. What are the downsides from the state's position on a, on this court writing an opinion adopting the standards in cribs for probation violations? When it, when there are elements that are required to be found, you can't just say you did it. Go. You know, the court's got to make certain findings. Correct, but we don't, we don't, Indiana does not require courts to make specific factual findings in right. criminal cases or probation cases. Right, but if they do find, but, but there are some things that you, there are some boxes that need to be checked, and there's due process and rights that happen on probation revocation hearings. What is the harm on applying Krebs to probation violations, given that there's years of somebody's freedom at stake? 
I think one of the things it does is it is Cribs misunderstands, and again, I keep returning to this point, but it misunderstands what the trial court was doing in Cribs in this case and other cases after it's made its initial founding at the conclusion of evidence. Um, it, the danger there is, I mean, what the, what the trial court really was doing here was kind of explaining its mental process and, it, and its process for arriving at the... All right, let, let me give you let me get an example. You've got somebody on a probation violation for possession of marijuana. Um, and that's the, the violation is possession of marijuana. For, they didn't file a new charge. They filed it as a probation revocation because that's what happens sometimes. New charges can come in a couple different doors. The, the marijuana was found on another child or another person. So the court finds, I know you didn't know you had it, but you should have known that the guy two seats down from you had it, so I'm going to revoke your probation and, and you're going to DOC for three years. I think the state's position there is that there's no reason why a traditional review of the sufficiency of evidence would be inadequate to address those concerns. Uh, so you would not think you, you still you're going to you're going to hang with the fact cribs should never apply in a probation revocation. You, and an element cannot be even if the court finds that an element on the, that that you that brought them in the court on the probation isn't there. It's just too bad. As so long as the final thing was you're guilty. Correct. I, I think that the. Traditional sufficiency review would be adequate to address that. I think this court's precedent in Miller v. State, uh, which would, which remands to the trial court with instructions to follow the proper legal remedy, would address that concern as well. Well, let's talk about that, counsel. What, could that happen in this case? If, if this court were to apply cribs here and say that the trial court erred in this, in this statement at sentencing, and the case got sent back, uh, could the trial judge have another, take another crack at it and say, you know, I, was I, was, I misspoke on that second element because I got caught up on the question of consenting adults, which is completely irrelevant to the question of obscenity. Um, and now that I realize that, I find that that element is, uh, is, is met as well. And, and could the violation still be then reinstated could that happen on remand, or is this, or is this settled as uh, race judicata, issue preclusion, et cetera? It would depend on, on the, this court's order. If, if the order was a remand for reconsideration, the, court, the trial court could again conclude that it was, the material was patently offensive and, the violation was, and find the violation. Um, or the state could choose not to proceed, and the net result would be the revocation was vacated. Or if the state felt strongly about it, uh, they could they could uh, proceed. Correct. Correct. And yes. then we wouldn't have a disconnect between what was said at the contested hearing, uh, what was said at the sanctions hearing. Uh, correct. Correct. Yes. Is there any? difference as a practical matter in your analysis and your position between uh, the fact that there was the, the hearing on the violation and then the hearing on the sanction and that the problematic statements were said at the hearing on the sanction, not uh, during the uh, sanction, or the hearing on the sanctions, not during the hearing on whether or not there was a violation. 
Yes. Uh, to, to that extent, at the conclusion of the evidentiary hearings, the trial court was clear that it had found the state met its burden by a preponderance of the evidence and, a, and found a violation. Um, and it said it's sanctioned hearing for two weeks later. Two weeks later, the court has this kind of, uh, says this kind of equivocal slip of the tongue statement at the sanction hearing in a particular context. I, I think the fact that there is a separation of time makes that distinction between an evidentiary hearing and a sanction hearing even clearer um, and, and further informs that this, the trial court didn't think it was making a finding of fact during the statement. And to treat it as such uh, is unfair to the trial court to retroactively say, trial court, what you're doing here is a finding of fact, even though that's not what you thought you were doing. Um, and, then, and then, Your Honors, as a, as a final point, uh, the, today is the first time Bennett has raised the argument that this, this material could not otherwise be found patently offensive. Um, his initial briefing, his briefing to this court, has never said that if the trial court didn't make this statement, the evidence was insufficient. Um, so <coughs> uh, raising it now, I, I think, kind of precludes the court from com coming to that conclusion. Um, in addition, the trial court's finding that this matter was patently offensive is supported by substantial evidence, uh, as the Court of Appeals concluded as well. Thank you. All right. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Boots, rebuttal. Just briefly, Your Honors, uh, this is should not, cannot be characterized as a slip of the tongue. What the court said was something very important. It was her factual finding on one of the elements that had to be proven. It shouldn't matter when it was said. This is before uh, the case left her courtroom. This was the fact that it was at a sanctions hearing doesn't matter. But counsel, wasn't she wrong as a matter of law, though? I mean, she, she bases that doubt on this question of, well, it's consenting adults, and the case law seems to say that has nothing to do with it. Miller is, is not applicable. In that case, the court's words reflected that it had applied a wrong standard of review. In this case, the court was talking about her evaluation of the facts. We, we consider whether something is patently offensive to be a quintessentially factual finding that is reserved for the trial court or the jury using contemporary community standards. That's essential. The court was making her evaluation of that, that finding under her contemporary community standards analysis. This was a factual finding, not a legal finding. But, but, but uh, when the fact finder is a judge sitting as a bench trial, or in this case, simply reviewing a probation revocation, I mean, why is she any better able to tell to just tell us what the community standard is than any one of the five of us collectively? Because we reserve those sorts of questions for the trial court for, for the well, we very reason. we typically reserve it to the jury, 
the, the community at large that's represented in, in a jury to make those decisions, but if it's the trial judge simply making that decision, why is she any especially uh, uniquely qualified to decide what the contemporary community standards than anybody else is? Because she sits in that community. This court, there could be very, very different community standards throughout the entire state of Indiana. That trial judge was making a, an evaluation of the contemporary community standards in her courtroom, in her community, of whether or not that was patently offensive. This court, that would be a, a different, that would be a different question for this court. This court doesn't find facts like that. We leave that to the trial court. That's why this is, this is a factual matter, not a legal matter. That's why Miller won't work. We, if we, if she hadn't said anything, you know, we, we always presume that the trial court knows and follows the law. But when the court specifically states something that reveals some, a fact-finding, we, we can't ignore that. But what if she says something that reveals she misapplied the law? That would be different. But that's what she's done here. No, I disagree with you, Your Honor. She did not misapply the law. She used her evaluation of the evidence to determine this was not patently offensive, using community contemporary standards for her evaluation of the evidence. And it's, it's noteworthy, the trial court never said, I find this material, these photos obscene. She never said that. She said, I find you in violation, you know what you did, you knew what was on that phone. She never said these are obscene. But she's not required to, is she? She was required to make a finding whether the state had proven those elements. But on a probation violation, you're not required to find, okay, element one was met, element two, element Correct. three. You just make the ultimate conclusion. She, she did not have to make specific findings of fact, but she did. She did at the sentencing hearing. We, that can't be ignored. Should not be, should not be sent back for her to reevaluate a factual determination that she made. Can that be done? Are you saying it can't be remanded? I, I'm saying it shouldn't be remanded. Our position is that that would be inappropriate because this was a fact-finding, not a legal conclusion. Or, what a, happens? A, or an incorrect, an, uh, incorrect what, what, application of a legal okay. standard. Fair, but what happens if it were remanded and the judge on the record says, I, I, I did make a slip of the time. That's not at all what I intended. Here's my explanation as to what I was thinking. Absolutely not my intention. I'll even walk you through what I find and what I found. I don't know. I was having a bad moment. My, oh, I thought my time was up. Um, if this court decides... You weren't hoping your time was up. Yes, I was hoping it was expired. <laughs> That's the best answer. If this, this court can do as it wishes, and if it, if it remands, then the court can decide whether she just simply says, I find you in violation, or if she chooses to explain herself. The court chose to explain her reasoning, her thought process in evaluating the evidence at the sentencing or the sanctions hearing, so we have that here. If there are no further questions, we would uh, ask this court to reverse the violation of probation. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Counsel, thank you for your argument. We will be discussing the case and issuing an opinion. All right.